The next instalment in our Body of Christ series is an active body. We'll take our reading uh, from Romans chapter 12. And we'll start from verse 1 and go down to verse 13. And we'll make some reference to this as we go through our talk today. So Romans chapter 12, just keeping in mind the title of an active body. Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment, in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honour one another above yourselves, never be lacking in zeal. But keep your spiritual fervour serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. And share with the Lord's people who are in need. And practice hospitality. It was in the mid to late 90s that I visited the European head office for a firm that's well known to us all because of their strap line and also their name. And as I walked in, I was quite captivated by how big their well-known slogan was emblazoned on their walls and all around the place. And it was a slogan that had been created by a marketing company in 1988. And the slogan worked on so many levels. It worked for the company uh, to give impetus and incentive to them as a, an organisation to uh, go further and do better. But also this slogan was used as a marketing tool uh, to get the general public and potential customers inspired uh, to work in a certain way. And it worked for them. 1988, when that slogan was adopted, they moved from having a turnover of $880 million worldwide. And in 10 years, with the use of the slogan, they'd gone to $9.2 billion. They'd gone from having less than 20% of the share of the North American market in shoes to having... 50% of the share in those shoes. It's Nike. 
And their slogan was, just do it. It just worked so well for them as an organization internally, but also as their marketing tools. One of the greatest little three-word marketing slogans that's ever been created. So effective. I want us to think today about something similar because I think Paul's saying the same thing in Romans 12. Just do it. We'll think about an impetus to do things for God. We'll think about the inspiration to do things for God and for each other. And also the incentive. Impetus is the the force of the energy by which a body moves. That's the technical definition of it. But we're thinking about the impetus that Paul reminds the Church of God in Rome here. The impetus for them individually to give themselves in service. Notice at the start it's an appeal to the individual. But it's also an appeal to the body that is seen there in that local church. For them together to give themselves in their service to God and to one another. What is the impetus that Paul at the beginning of Romans 12 uses? It's what God has done in his mercy for his people. That God's salvation and the freedom from the slavery of sin has come to his people in all of its glory in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That God has worked for the good of those who will trust in him. That's the impetus that Paul uses. You know this, that's the beginning of uh, chapter 12. He says, therefore, because he's thinking back to the previous 11 chapters and what Paul has outlined about the glorious work of God in the gospel. He says, in, in light of all that, then do this. That's the impetus. A verse came to mind just before coming up here. I was thinking about that verse in Isaiah 64 and verse 4 where it speaks of the people of, of Israel recognizing. They say, since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, and no eye has seen any God besides you who works on behalf of those who trust in him. God is the God who works. And he has worked a salvation that is so glorious in the person of the Lord Jesus that Paul says, this is the impetus. You've been set free from your slavery to sin that you might give yourself in service to one another and to God. This new life gives us the capacity to serve. I think there's a second element, a second element to the impetus that Paul is, is working at here in the scriptures that God has given us, gives to us in the consideration of a being active and giving ourselves Knowing that God works for us, we, we work too. What's the second element? It's that the mercy of God is not only that he has worked for the salvation of his people, but that God continues to work and he chooses to do it through his people. I believe that's a wonderful mercy of God. God invites us to work with him. When Paul's writing his letter, to, second letter, as we have it in the scriptures, to Corinth, he actually says at the beginning of chapter 6 and verse 1, he says, as God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. As God's co-workers, 
he sees himself as working alongside God. And that is a wonderful mercy that God in his mercy would not only save a people who deserved the punishment that was due to them for their sin, but has worked in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ to take that away so they might be freed from it. But then he is merciful in continuing to be with them in all of their failures and their continuing sin because he is achieving something through them. Wonderful God we serve. He doesn't need us. If we ever think that God needs us, we've got it entirely wrong. The God who made everything somehow might need us. He doesn't. Nathan was sharing with the kids on Tuesday evening a wonderful account of the Lord Jesus taking the boys' lunch and sharing it with 5,000 plus people. The Lord didn't need the little boys' lunch. The Lord could have just done it. But what did he say? He said to the disciples, you give them something to eat. And they were like, what? It was an invitation for them to think, well, the Lord wants us to help in some way. How's that going to come about? And then the lunch comes forward and the miracle is performed. From five loaves and two fish, over 5,000 people are fed. He didn't need it. And actually, it was a pitiful thing that was offered, wasn't it? Meager supplies. But the mercy of God and the impetus for us in service is, yes, that he has saved us, but also the impetus, second element of it, is that he chooses then to continue to use his people with our meager supplies for his glory and the goodness of the world around us. What about inspiration then? Inspiration is the process of being stimulated to do something. God himself takes up residence by the person of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers. That's a continuing grace of God too, isn't it? And that actually inspires us, or should do. God himself within us inspiring us to activity. Inspiration, the very word, means to, to breathe into something. God did that at the very beginning with humanity. He breathed into humanity the breath of life. Man became a living being. But then with the new birth, a work of God, the Holy Spirit, through faith in the accomplished work of Christ on the cross and his resurrection, God breathes new life in. And the Holy Spirit himself, who is often described with the word in the Old Testament and the New Testament that speaks of breath, comes and has a place with us and in us. And as the Spirit resides in those that God has saved, he works in such a way in us to inspire us to service. You even go back into the Old Testament where the working of the Spirit is in a slightly different way to how we understand it today. Every single believer today is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. There's an inspiration in each believer. But in the Old Testament, you have times when the Spirit does his work. Or God does something with people that compels them to activity. Ezra chapter 1 verse 5. The people who came back after the captivity in Babylon to rebuild the temple. God had already, it says, moved the heart of Cyrus the king. There was God doing a work. 
God moved the heart of Cyrus to tell the people to come back. And then the people come back. It says the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose heart God moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. It's the same God who indwells us by his spirit. Later, when the temple building was delayed because of trouble that occurred, Haggai the prophet comes along and he brings a word from the Lord to encourage them to it. And it says, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel and the spirit of Joshua and the whole remnant of the people. And they came and they began to work on the house of the Lord. Inspiration. Here was God moving the heart. And God in us moves the heart in response to his work of salvation. What he shows us that he, will, he chooses to work through weak people like us. He comes in the person of his spirit to inspire us to serve us. Because we realize that with his indwelling, then he gives the capacity and the power to do it. And that's the teaching of the New Testament. So God moves the heart. Because God is present and he supplies everything that is needed in service for him. And we have the scriptures as well to constantly remind us of the fact. If we're ever lacking in our inspiration for what God might do through those he has saved, just pick up your Bible and spend half an hour in it. And you'll see the God who works but chooses to work through his people. So we thought about the impetus and we thought about the inspiration. What about the incentive? The incentive is, is that which motivates somebody to do something. This is bringing us back to Romans 12. What's the incentive? The incentive is, I think to Paul and to us, is that in Christ we belong to one another. You might think, well, that's an odd one. Yeah, it takes a wee bit of getting used to, doesn't it? But we belong to one another. And there is an incentive in the way God has worked to bring us together in the body of Christ. Recognizing that we belong to one another, as Paul describes it here, that is an incentive for us then to serve God. A new relationship is established by our personal union by faith with Christ. Paul is saying here that we are then joined to everybody else who is in the body of Christ. It's a mystical union. And as we've been teaching already, it's every genuine believer in the Lord Jesus Christ from the day of Pentecost onwards who finds their place in the body of Christ. But for those who are alive on this earth now, the evidence of that body is seen in a local church. We're united to one another, Paul says here. And he then adopts his one of his favourite metaphors that we've already touched on, which is the body, to describe this union, not just with Christ individually, as each of us has, but our union then, by virtue of that, with each other. We are together with each other. And notice the context when he's writing this always, and he's reminding people of this he's writing to local churches where the unseen body if I can describe it that way takes on tangible visible form 
That's important because it's logical that the union that we have with Christ that leads to the union with each other would mean that we would gather in churches according to God's instruction. So Paul, to try and describe this, this group of people, then uses the metaphor of the body. And he says, just as we all have one human body, he says then in Christ, you're a body. I do want to say at this point, 1 Corinthians 12 verse 27 is another text where when Paul was addressing the church of God in Corinth, he said, you are the body of Christ and each one of you is a part of it. You are body of Christ is really what's there in the Greek. It wasn't that they exclusively were the body of Christ at the exclusion of everybody else. It was that in character, they were body of Christ. Their union with each other, which came about through their desire to honour God, brought them together. And they were characterising the unity with the diversity and all that we've been thinking of in our series in a local church of God. Here Paul is going at the same thing. And he comes to that which people know is a single entity with multiple um, parts that are moving and sometimes not moving uh, that perform their functions to deliver on a singular goal usually though sometimes our bodies will will have a goal that's not necessarily what we would want for but you know that Paul takes up that metaphor because he sees it as a wonderful description of the union of Christ with his church with his people and how that should be seen then in the local setting we're fearfully and wonderfully made aren't we just as a little bit of a side, the average adult in 24 hours, your heart will beat 103,689 times. Your blood travels, this is amazing, 168 million miles in 24 hours. And some bits is a wee bit slower than others. Um, you breathe 23,040 times. Uh, you move 750 muscles, you speak 4,800 words. I'm going to trump that today. And you exercise 7 million brain cells. We're fearfully and wonderfully made. And all this is going on. And if you think about it, even when we're in, inactive and sort of semi-conscious, even when we're sleeping, the whole thing is just still going. It is remarkable. So Paul chooses that as his metaphor for this group of people that come together to serve God. To Christ's body, all of those believers that are united to him are united to one another, but... That is given expression then in the local church. And that means that there's work to be done in the local church setting. And my focus is, because I think the scriptures focus on this, it's, it's our work together and our work for one another as a priority. But that touches others. Now, even our hymns, when I was trying to choose a hymn for this, would emphasize the work of the individual, particularly in our work, as we would try to reach others with the gospel. That is an aspect of our work, but God has not called us uh, to Lone Ranger service. He's called us to united service, and that's an aspect of it. We do things in the strength that God supplies, where he has placed us, as Giles was telling us last week, in the uniqueness of our circumstances. But the priority of Scripture seems to be that we come together in a church, and we live for him there. There's a lot of stuff to do these days. It's wearisome sometimes. A church has a whole pile of admin 
and regulation that it has to honour these days. So there is work to be done. It might not necessarily fit in with what we see here in terms of the gifts that are mentioned. Uh, but there's a whole lot of stuff that needs to be done for a church to function. Thankfully, we know that the adage that is mentioned in the Ecclesiastes that two are better than one because they have a good return for the labour works whenever we share work for God in the local church. What is the work that we're to do? What is the shared goal in our local setting? The scriptures would tell us that the shared goal of the body of Christ seen in a local church of God is to build up the body and to grow the body. Those texts in Ephesians chapter 4 that God equips his people for the works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. That means to solidify or to strengthen what is there already. But also Ephesians 4.16 that it's in him the whole body joined and held together with every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So there's growth too. And growth means extension and increase in size. So that's what our shared goal is to be in the local church setting. To build up what is here already and to extend and increase in size. So given all of that, that's, that's the incentive there. The incentive is that we work together for the building up and the growing of the body. As it's seen in a local church setting. Our place where we give expression to the ongoing work of God through those he has chosen to work through. What a privilege. There's plenty for us all to get involved in and do. And that's why Paul says, just do it. With such impetus and with such inspiration and with such incentive, and it's not exhaustive what I've gone through, of course, he says, just do it. If your Bible's still open, look at verse 6 <clears throat> onwards. Halfway through. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy. Do it. If uh, it's serving, verse 7, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Just do it. Repeatedly, he says, then do it, then do it, then do it. And Paul sees that God has equipped by his spirit in each of us people to perform various functions that are vital for the activity of the body. And even when things might seem to be somewhat sedentary, there is still work that's going on. And we mustn't forget that. I just want to rapidly give you some verses. Uh, for any that are taking notes or are going to listen to this again, if you're if you're bold enough to do that, or anybody that's listening to it for the first time, just to see some terms that are there in the New Testament as to how we are to go about this activity. Paul mentions in verse 11, zeal. Zeal is a diligence. It's a diligence and an eagerness of the mind and the heart to do something for God. Never be lacking in zeal. But keep your spiritual fervor, he encourages them. That's enthusiasm. And there's a hint of joy in that as well. So with zeal and with spiritual fervor, do your work. There's diligence is involved in this as well. And he mentions diligence in this. 
If you go to Hebrews 6, verses 11 and 12, he says, we want each of you to show the same diligence so that you won't become lazy, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. There's eagerness that is mentioned. Titus 2, verse 14, the work of God in bringing a people to himself. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his own, eager to do what is good, to just do it. There's devotion, Titus 3, verse 8. Those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to do what is good. Just do it. These things are profitable and excellent for everyone, Paul says. And also, without neglect. And Timothy, when Paul was writing there to young Timothy, 1 Timothy 4.14, he said, Don't neglect your gift, which was given to you. Just on that point, I was in Nehemiah 13 in my studies, just very quickly to mention it. Nehemiah, when he returns to Jerusalem after they've done the building of the wall, he's been away for a little time and he comes back. And the service of the house of God is no longer taking place because the Levites who were responsible for the practicalities have had to go back to their fields why why have they done that it's because the people had neglected to bring in the tithe and the tithe was necessary that the Levites could do their work so one element had an impact on another which meant that the service of the house of the Lord in that time ceased and Nehemiah rightly had some righteous indignation against it and he sorted it out it reminds us that our little part that we might have to play is vital for the activity and the effect of working under God's sovereignty of a local church of God. I want us to finish by reading 1 Peter chapter 4 without any comment on it. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 7. Peter picks up the same theme, an encouragement to activity. Given everything that God has done for us and will do through us and will yet achieve in the future. 1 Peter 4 verse 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply. Because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Just do it. Let's pray.